Hello, and welcome to This Speech Life, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com, exploring all things related to school-based SLP practice. I'm your host, Caitlin Lopez, MSCCC SLP, a pediatric SLP with 10 years experience in the school setting. Each week, we will cover three need-to-know aspects of that episode topic, two resources related to the topic, and one actionable strategy for tomorrow. I am Caitlin Lopez, your host, a pediatric SLP based in Southern California. If you have any questions during today's episode, please pop them into the chat or the Q&A box. And as a reminder, at the conclusion of today's course, please log into your course portal on the speechtherapypd.com website and complete all modules, especially the one entitled Quiz, to get your live CE credit for today. Before we begin, here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. I am Caitlin Lopez, the host of the podcast, This Speech Life. I receive compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com for this episode, and there are no relevant non-financial relationships that exist. Shannon Warbeckis is the owner of Speechy Musings. She receives an honorarium from SpeechTherapyPD.com for this presentation, and there are no relevant non-financial relationships that exist. All right, so without further ado, I am very excited to introduce to all of you Shannon Werbeckis. She is a speech-language pathologist and the founder of Speechy Musings, which is one of my favorite TPT stores and blogs. I reference her all of the time. She creates materials and resources for pediatric speech-language pathologists. She received her bachelor's degree in communication sciences and disorders from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and her master's degree from Radford University. Shannon is passionate about the areas of language, literacy, communication, and AAC. So welcome today, Shannon. I am so excited that you are going to spend the next hour with us. I'm excited to be here and chat all things morphology. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. All right. So let's just jump right in. What are three things that school-based SLPs need to know about morphology? Yeah. So I actually kind of want to back up first before I get into my first one, just to make sure I feel like morphology wasn't discussed in my grad program that much. So I wanted to give like a little background on like I know we're all probably SLPs and know what it is, but just like why it's so important and all the vocab words I'm going to use later. So morphology is the study of the structure of words or how they're built. So we're specifically looking at root words, prefixes, and suffixes. Morpheme is the smallest unit of meaning in words. And some words might only have one morpheme. So words like run or cat or wrong, just words like that that are just one singular meaning while many others have like two morphemes and you can get up to like words with tons of morphemes so words with two might be words like runner so you have the run which is your base word and then you add er which means a person who so you have a person who runs you have those two units of meaning in that one word so for example um, the word cats contains two morphemes cat tells us what animal we're talking about and the suffix s tells us how many cats we're talking about so you have those two units of meaning When I think about morphology or morphological awareness, the words that come 
to mind are not like cats to me. They're words like unreliable or autobiography or disruptive, where you have like lots of pieces that go together that you can figure out what those words mean if you break them apart. You look at each piece individually. So if you look at unreliable, you can see un has a prefix un. And then the main word, the base word is rely. And then the suffix able. So if you broke that down, you can figure out what that means just by the word parts itself. So on means not, rely means you can count on someone, able means you know you're able to rely on them. So you're not able to rely on someone. So that's a classic, you know, morphological word in my mind. Something that has all these different components and might look a little complex to our students at first, but when you teach them, all these parts have meanings, it's a lot easier to break them apart and understand them. So just like we might do phonemic awareness skills practice with our students by playing with sounds and words, isolating sounds from the words, swapping out different sounds or removing sounds, we do the same with morphemes. So this would be morphological awareness, which is sort of a level up from phonemic awareness. So an example of an activity might be taking plural nouns and removing the plurals to make them singular nouns, or adding the prefix un to a bunch of different words to make new words, like turning happy into unhappy and clean into unclean. So those are examples of just simple morphological awareness activities. So all skilled readers, anyone who reads beyond like a second grade level is what I've heard, uses this type of morphological information to become a skilled reader. So they use it as clues to figure out the meaning of a word and syntactical information. So it's kind of that double whammy. We get clues on meaning and on syntax. And the syntax information is often just part of speech. Certain suffixes tell you what part of speech it is, or verb tense, which we'll talk about a lot later. But one of the most common suffixes is ed. So we just know it's a past tense verb when we see that. So everyone who reads at a higher level sees words and does this sort of automatically or implicitly as you read. So during interventions with our students, we're just trying to get this skill explicit so that it can become automatic for them too. So that as they're seeing words, they can see all these parts and kind of how they go together. We know that if our students are using all their energy and resources, I mean, I've worked with so many students like this, they're trying to decode so hard, figure out what each word means that they're not able to do like any higher level language skills. So like identifying the main idea becomes impossible if you're like breaking down each word or answering comprehension questions or summarizing. So we want to make the skill of morphology and affixes getting all this information from words just super automatic to free up resources for those higher level language skills. Because when we get stuck on each individual word, it's hard to sort of see the big picture. And then I also wanted to share a little bit about when the skill develops. I was sort of surprised when I looked into this. It develops, I think, way younger than I expected. But just so we can also all imagine maybe a kid in our minds on who this might be useful for. So morphological awareness skills in general develop throughout all of elementary and beyond, which I'll share more about later. But when students start elementary school, most students, if they're typically developing, understand that affixes or suffixes specifically mark verb tense. So by the time you're entering school, I don't know if it's the easiest level, but the quickest to develop are those past tense markers and verb tense endings. As they go through elementary school, they learn more and more and more. So like the more advanced skill of like the semantic information, like how un changes the word meaning, that develops later and later through third, fourth, fifth grade. To take away from this is like the young children, even as young as kindergartners or first graders, do show a lot of implicit morphological awareness skills. So if our kids aren't really showing that implicit knowledge of verb endings, knowing when things happen, we can target those skills with students of any age, basically, once they're in school. 
And then I just wanted to share before I get into my first one, why affixes, like why I like them. And it kind of touches on some of the stuff I said earlier, but I love it for two reasons, two main reasons. One of them is that our job in the schools is like, in my brain, choosing academic language targets and contextualizing it in the classroom for a lot of my students, the students where we're talking about like language and literacy skills. So it's trying to find as academic of targets as I can. And then how do I make this like useful or relevant for anything that they're doing outside of the speech room. A lot of my school experience has been in schools that have been really inclusive, co-taught. So I saw probably 90% of my caseload in their classroom each week. So this like just impressed on me so much that like the therapy I do needs to be academically relevant because it becomes so obvious when you're in a classroom when you're not targeting anything that's useful for them in the classroom. So this is just one of those skills that kept coming up again and again and again, and I'll chat through examples of what I did in the classroom later, but there's just an aha moment going in the classroom being like, oh my gosh, affixes are everywhere. They're in every text at every level. And of course, one of the biggest struggles we have in the schools is having mixed groups. So you have all these kids with all these different foundational needs and different, you know, weak areas and strengths. So if you think about our language system and the core foundational skills involved in it, it would be phonology, semantics, and syntax. And we as SLPs probably can see those three areas and see that morphology overlaps in all of them. So affixes are a clue for how words are pronounced. So that helps you with the phonology of the word. So if you think about magic turning into magician, that's like my favorite example of how the pronunciation changes, but that's a lot easier to remember and know when you know that the ending, the suffix for magician. So knowledge of affixes helps you to know how to pronounce words. It also helps with the semantics, the meaning of words. So happy versus unhappy, the meaning completely changes with that prefix. And then, like I said, it also helps with the syntax. So quick versus quickly, the words mean really similar things, but they're used differently in a sentence. They have different parts of speech. So I love affixes because I found that if kids had a foundational issue in phonology, that I could target that with affixes. And if they had a foundational issue with syntax, I could talk about verb endings and things like that. If they were having trouble with meanings of words, you know, we hit that too. We can make, we do it all, but that way it's just like the one skill that I felt like kind of tapped into all these different areas. And I read in an article, and this has just stuck with me, that morphology is often like the glue or the binding agent between all these other skills, even including orthography, how something is written, phonology, semantics. So basically how words are written, how words sound, and what they mean are all tied together with morphology. So it kind of like links all that other stuff. And I also just kind of mentioned this at the beginning, but those big picture language skills, like when teachers come to us, they're often bringing us these like big areas like reading comprehension or vocabulary. And it's sort of like hard where to get started with some of these things because it's like, I don't know, these big, hairy, meaty areas, you know? So to me, this is one of those areas that I can provide explicit instruction. It's really functional. I find it in all the text. So it's just one of those areas that I've found is like a foundational area before addressing kind of those bigger picture things. So that was what I wanted to share before my one, two, and three, but we can hop into one, two, and three if that all makes sense. And yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for that little, we'll call that, I mean, I'm trying to think of like, that pre, you know, maybe A, B, and C before we get to the one, two, and three. <laughs> yeah, um, I kept finding myself going back to these things. I'm like, I just need to get some background. But. Yeah, and I think that that's really helpful because like you said in grad school, we didn't really talk about morphology. And I'm trying to think about like, well, I do remember counting morphemes and that's about it. 
And even like <laughs> arguing with like professors, like, no, I think this is, you know, three morphemes or whatever. Yeah, um, and it's like the browns, you know, like, yeah. I was like looking for really classic markers, but it wasn't in like a functional teaching way that I, I didn't learn anything kind of like that. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm, and as you're going through it, I thought, oh my gosh. There are so many things I did not even think of. I am so excited that you're going to be spending this time with us. So thank you for the background. Now we kind of are all starting fresh and from the same level of understanding. So please jump into one, two, and three. Awesome. So the first thing I think all SLPs should know is that explicitly teaching affixes is research supported for both reading comprehension and word learning. I wanted to share two bits from research articles that struck me when I was first learning about morphology, sort of pointing to its relevance and for literacy development as a whole. So the first is that English is actually a morphophonemic system, which means our spelling system relies just as much on morphemes as it does on phonemes. So we focus so much on phonemes or individual sounds in speech, but not as much morphemes. But because the way our language is structured, morphemes are a really key thing for students to learn to attend to and become familiar with. It's like what our written language is made up of. So because English relies so much on that, A student's morphological awareness skills actually explain up to 15% of a student's performance on literacy assessments, just their morphological awareness skills. So that's, again, what I mentioned earlier. You can get to about a second grade level of reading without relying significantly on morphological skills. So it's just sort of necessary if we want our kids to become good readers, which I'm sure we all do. (laughs) And the second thing I pulled from research that I thought was just really interesting was the morphological awareness skills predict a student's reading and writing skills, even when other factors, including phonemic awareness, orthographic awareness, their vocabulary, and their other language abilities are considered. So when we consider all of those, morphological awareness skills are still predicting a student's reading and writing skills. So again, I think that's probably due to what I shared at the beginning, Morphology just taps into so many different language systems. It taps into the phonology, the semantics, the syntax. So I think that in my mind, that sort of makes sense, but it is like a main predictor of reading and writing skills. So that was the first thing I wanted to share was just that it's research supported for literacy skills, including reading comprehension and word learning. So if those are sort of big areas your students need to work on, this is probably a really good foundational skill to make sure that you tarp it. And then actually, before I jump into number two, I just wanted to share thoughts on assessment really quick. I had kind of different areas to look at because sometimes I feel like you're like, how do I do I just test them? Like, do you know what un means? Um, So even in typical learners, this skill develops throughout a student's entire life. So it's not something you like master like the K sound and then you just like move on. You always say the K sound correctly. It's something that you're always learning and kind of building upon. And a little side note, I read this study, it was on college students, and actually their reading comprehension skills were predicted based on their morphological awareness skills as well. This trend continues through college, and that was, again, controlled for reading speed and vocabulary. So it isn't just a huge thing forever. So the assessment piece kind of can, like, be tricky because it's one of those skills that's not at first grade, you should know these ones, and then at fifth grade, you should know these ones. So again, we're just seeing this predictive element over and over again. So knowing that it continues to develop through life, there's four ways that I often look at this. You can look at, does a student, can they identify prefixes and suffixes in words? So if you give them the word unhappy, can they circle the affix or any parts that mean anything? Can they isolate happy? That's a word I know. So just can they even be given a word and isolate components of it? You could also look if they can use common suffixes 
like the past tense ed or plurals to get syntax information because that's sort of the first to develop of affixes so something that i love to do is just say sentences like this is my favorite go-to is i say i have dogs and then i say when i say that what do you picture in your brain do I have one dog? Do I have more than one dog? And then how do you know? And I can even repeat the sentence like over and over. I have dogs. And kind of seeing if they can isolate that that S on the end of dog is how they know I have more than one dog. So kind of give them sentences and just see, can they use suffixes to figure out tense or any syntactical information? Yeah, I've also done that same activity with like past tense things. I say, you know, I did something yesterday and use the past tense ED and then sort of ask, how do they know when that happened? So the third thing is just that level up slightly. So they're using prefixes and suffixes to gain information about the meaning. So it's not just syntax. Now we're looking at meaning. I might say, I did a lot of work in middle school, so they hopefully aren't too high level, but I would say a word like dissimilar. What does dissimilar mean? How do you know? And see if they can separate dis similar or you know any word but then say how does that you know what does that mean can you break it apart so that's number three and then the last one which is the highest level is reading and spelling complex words containing affixes so i might say like spell dissatisfied and that is very challenging but you can actually really break it apart if you know morphemes so that would be kind of the last assessment task that i might do you can look at those loosely in some sort of hierarchy and i've written goals for pretty much any of those areas so i might write goals for identifying affixes and words i might write a goal for using uh, affixes to gain meaning about gain information about the meaning of a word so that was kind of the side note on assessment now the second thing i wanted to share was all about kind of treatment ideas so number two thing that i think all slp should know is just that affixes are functional they're everywhere and they're really easy to target I'm going to dive into the kind of the three main ways. I started to reflect on like, what kinds of things do I do if I really feel like affixes are something I want to target? And I actually came up with sort of three buckets. Obviously, there's a ton more you can do, but these are kind of the activities I was doing over and over again. And the first was sorts. This is just always just an easy one for everything, but it brings attention to affixes for even our youngest students. So we might sort words into two groups based on the prefix they start with. So I might even write on an index card. I just fill, put one word on a bunch of index cards, hide them around the room and have them find them. If they find unhappy, they put it in the unpile. Undo, you put it in the unpile. Redo, you put it in the repile. So they're just, it's so basic, but even just to have them pay attention to the first two letters and know that they kind of are grouped with similar parts has been really fun. And that one's fun just because you can hide the cards all over the room, get some going scavenger hunts for them, and you're just looking for words and sort of grouping them based on similar aspects. Another thing that I found myself doing a lot was just tying them into any therapy theme or just any topic I'm already doing in therapy. So I'm going to share some examples of themes I've done, but I feel like you can do this with anything. And I often just Google like, the topic affixes or prefixes and try to see, but some examples are like dinosaurs. I have a whole lesson that I do on the prefix try. So we watch video or look at pictures of triceratops. We kind of watch them move and I have try written on the board. And we discuss why the dinosaur was given that name. Why were they named a triceratops? And then we apply that prefix try to a ton of other words. So we create words like triple, triplets, tricycle, triathlon, and sort of break them down and discuss what that means. So 
Some other examples are cooking and food. I teach over, so we do over-baked, over-eat, over-fill. What happens if you over-fill a bowl when you're cooking? What happens if you over-bake something? So you're kind of trying to find these words. Like, there are almost always words and themes that come up again and again. Like, outer space content, you'll see AST, A-S-T, in everything. Astronaut, asteroid, astronomy. So that one just lends itself. Anytime I do an outer space anything or in the classroom, they're talking about space, I introduce that one. The last one that I do all the time is weather. And this one is, is really good for lower level kids too, younger kids. I do four, as in forecast. We discuss what it means to know something before it happens. And that word for. And then the really easy one is the suffix E or Y, adding the Y on the end. So you see that so often in words like rainy, sunny, cloudy, windy. So those are really easy because it's just like I see sun outside it's sunny. You know, I see rain outside. It's rainy. It's really concrete and pretty clear. So tying affixes to content you're already doing is the second way that I just saw myself doing that again and again and again. And just, I'll give an example in the next one, but this can get really high level, which is really nice. So just using whatever they're learning about and relating affixes to it. And then circling kind of back, I love doing affixes in the classroom. So this would be the third way. Definitely one of my favorite things I ever did with my middle schoolers was affix units. I collaborated with other content teachers, pretty much science and social studies. Those subjects are just littered with affixes, just constant. So I would come into the classroom, I would provide suggestions or little mini affix units, or little activities that went along with their classroom units. So for example, one of them was we were learning about economic systems in social studies. So really high level concepts, but I just looked through the text that they were using in their textbooks. And they also had some printed out pages and it took me about two minutes and I came up with like 15 words that were either in word families or had affixes in them. So some examples on this unit that I wrote were govern or government, economy, economic, power, powerful, produce, production. So I try to find like these words that have like a lot of different versions written in the text. This is really good for students who are learning English as a second language too, because I feel like it helps like make it so much more efficient. They're learning just like networks of words instead of learning what each one means. So that's sort of my third way that I loved doing affixes was just getting right in the classroom. So quick summary on the three is in the classroom, relate to themes and sorts. Those are just probably my go-to sort of, if I feel like affixes flag in my brain is something that might be helpful, those are sort of my go-tos. Then I had three different ways that I break this down, of course, <laughs> even more. So you can do one at a time, one affix at a time. So do on. And you practice putting on on everything. You turn it into unhappy. So you do on everything. You can also do word building where you start with a base word. And then you add suffixes or prefixes onto it. So I might do freeze in the winter. And we learn what antifreeze means, what unfreeze means, what freezing means. So we're just using kind of a related word. So you're not targeting one affix, you're targeting one base word. And then last, you can do word deconstruction. This is a really fun game for older kids. I usually put up like little dividers so they can't cheat off their neighbor or I put them in groups and they get one piece of paper and I have them write a word on the top to start. So we all might write disagree. And even just the writing on the top sometimes takes 10 minutes because we have to sound it all out, find the affix in it and do that. But we write the word on the top and then I give them a puzzle or a challenge, which would be like, take off the prefix dis. So then they would cross off dis. They would just have agree left. Now add the suffix meant and you would create agreements or something. And I would, I would go through like lots of different 
you know, sometimes I only do two like that, but sometimes I have lots of challenges. Take this off, add this, take this off, now add this, and you create bigger words and see if they can come up with the same word at the end that I have written on a piece of paper. For some reason, they think the secret word is a really fun game, but they're practicing just putting on suffixes, taking off prefixes. I might say, like, what word did you end up with and how did the word change as you sort of did that? So that's the second point, just that they're easier to target. They fit into every theme, every topic, and hopefully that gives some ideas of sort of how you can incorporate it, but it really has been like an easy thing. I have never walked into a classroom and joined a unit or a theme and just been like, I can't think of any any affixes that are used in this text or related to this theme. They're just everywhere. So that's something I feel like when you're not taught much about morphology, it might seem more difficult to incorporate than it really, really is. They're just, they're in everything. Thank you so much. I mean, I was scribbling notes like crazy. (laughs) Um, And it does sound really easy to do the way that you've broken it down as far as there's so much creativity that we can have. We can work within a theme because I know a lot of speech therapists love to do theme therapy where, you know, you've got a theme for a week or two weeks. And I'm also thinking a lot of like literacy based therapy. It's super easy to pull these words out of books. Because it's right there and I don't even have to think of them. (laughs) Did you know that SpeechTherapyPD.com has weekly live and interactive webinars? We are the fastest growing CE provider. Subscribe today to get access to over 750 different courses in audio or video format. So I love that. I loved all of your suggestions as far as like weather or cooking or space and There really is so much that we can do, whether we work within a specific theme or a specific classroom or even just working with a prefix or a suffix and using that be the theme for the day. So thank you so much. I'm excited to start trying this already. Good. Yeah. And just classroom teachers, I found latched onto it. I feel like sometimes teachers would be like frustrated, like, what can we have them participate in that's like somewhat independent while the rest of their peers are doing other stuff? We have had differentiated levels for everything. And some students, it was just tricky to sort of find that right level. And I felt like affixes were one of those things we, I could almost always do. Like, even if I just printed a word and ha- like printed different prefixes and suffixes and had them added onto the word and write how many new words they could come up with. Like, even just like the freeze example, just give them the word freeze and then have on, read, and then some make words, some make nonsense but try to see if they can figure out like what would go together to come up like that was just an independent station that we were able to set up for several students that I felt like was a huge boost they're basically doing speech work in the classroom off my watch and it was just like teachers loved it I loved it It was just like a very big win-win yeah this is awesome and as you were talking about even how morphology really impacts literacy I spoke about this last week. We did an episode on interprofessional practice and how a third grade teacher and I were noticing that these, a lot of her students had really weak phonological awareness skills. And I'm now thinking, oh my goodness, I should have been targeting morphological awareness skills. I didn't even think of that. Um, I saw that too. And I think actually they both need to be targeted. And I I wish I could find it because I wanted to cite it in this, but I did think I heard that you should do that phonological phonemic first before kind of bumping up. But, you know, they don't need to like master it, but it is sort of an easier thing oftentimes is doing one sound per one thing. But I found the same, even my sixth, seventh, eighth graders really struggled in all of this. And I, I think you can just see how that would lead to a lot of issues like decoding and writing. I mean, 
just breaking everything down to the level, if you don't have these shortcuts, it just seems so much more daunting. Absolutely. Absolutely. So thank you. As we're thinking through these three things that you've given us, what resources do you have for us to either use in our therapy or to help us better understand, you know, some of these things you've been talking about? Yes. I actually have a third. One yes. more. Awesome. <laughs> it's a quick one, but it should actually simplify if you're someone who gets like overwhelmed with all of the word vomit I just did on how easy it is to do. Number three, I think simplifies things a oh, little bit. Oh, I'm so sorry for cutting you are you totally off. good. No, you're totally good. Then I do have resources. <laughs> but number three that I just think everyone should know is that a very small number of affixes make up 97% of affixes found in printed text. So it's sort of like the idea of core vocabulary. We're a really small number of words make up the majority of what we say in a day, affixes are the exact same way. So some of the examples I gave above are sort of like the outer space ones. Those are very like niche content focused ones, but these are ones that they make up the 97%. I call them my core four. So you have a core four prefixes, core four suffixes. The core four for prefixes are dis, re, un, and in slash im, like impossible. And the most common suffixes are ed for past tense verbs, ing, ly, and plurals, s or es. So from the suffix list, you can see how you easily target syntax and affixes at the same time. And because those suffixes often change like the verb tense or the part of speech, they're a really good way to do kind of double dipping. So when you think about the activities I shared earlier, like sorting, collaborating with teachers, or relating them to themes, you could even just consider starting all these activities using just the core four. One way I did it when I would just not be able to really differentiate lessons, like what I was saying, go into the classroom, make all these units. One thing that I would just do is do uh, affix per week. So we would do the core four prefixes for a month. One week we would do the, you know, one, then move on to the next, next, next. The next month was suffix month. And we just flip-flopped. So we would just do an affix a week out of those core four kind of works nice. There's four weeks in a month and you're targeting 97% of what your students are going to encounter. And I, I think that number is probably even higher in, in lower level texts. So they're sticking more to those dis, re, on words like that. So I'll link in the resources, which I'll get to next. I'll link where this is. It's on Scholastic. If you Google like common prefixes and suffixes Scholastic, they star the top four on this long list of good affixes to target. I just found that even just that printable is really helpful because it gives maybe 15 prefixes and 15 suffixes, but just starring those common ones just brings me back to like, if I don't have time to create all these themed ones or go in the classroom and figure out what they're working on, just coming back to these core four over and over is a really useful tool for probably most of our students anyways. All right. And then I have two resources. So there are so many resources. I had a very hard time limiting this to two. I'm very biased. I'm going to include my resource first. I have a prefix and suffix activities, and it's just a big, big packet. It's hundreds and hundreds of pages. goes through the core four. goes through 50 prefixes, I believe, and 50 suffixes. But it does those three activities I mentioned earlier. It goes through one at a time. It goes through word building and word deconstruction. So that is just a clear-cut resource if you just are into printables and kind of the shortcut to just print things and run, that's a good one. If you're more into like a web app or something you can pull up online, Vanderbilt has a web app called Word Detectives, worddetectives.com. 
it's a free web app that has been used in research. You can even read like the research studies that were done on it. My disclaimer for this one is that I think it's best for older students, middle school and up. It gets a little complicated and I found that like in a private practice setting or a small group, it works really well. But if you have a big group, it's like we're all looking at the tiny computer screen and it was a little bit trickier, but it has like a ton of affix activities and it's in like a video game format. So you click on like a town or a village to explore and then it has like a little puzzle that you have to solve and it's sort of a fun like gamified version of morphology. I also put links to all the research I used to compile this and those two things and just a little summary speechymusings.com slash morphology and I put like that scholastic thing that I referenced with the top four and all the kind of things that I'm chatting about just so I always feel like these podcasts are tricky to hear it all and like internalize it all, but I'll add like a link to this and everything there. But if you forget those two resources, they're both linked there. But the Vanderbilt one is really great. And the website actually has a lot of morphology info on it, even if you don't use the web app. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. I'm excited. And I can attest to how amazing her affixes resources. So, but I'm a huge fan of all of your resources. Whenever there's a sale, I always am like, okay, let me go straight to speechy musings. <laughs> I have a few others that I like, but I just appreciate your content is so easy to just use the next day. So oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> all right. And so as we are, like you said, there's been a lot of information that you have given us. How do we get started for tomorrow? If we want to try some of these things out? Yes. So I think this kind of touches on some of the stuff I've shared, but just relating it to motivating topics. If your kids are into anything, another one is Pokemon. Pokemon characters are really named like in all affixes. They all have little meanings hidden in them. You can almost always guess what a Pokemon is going to look like based on the name. So Pokemon, I mean, you can just incorporate anything. So related to motivating topics, classroom themes, just anything you're already doing, you don't need to reinvent the wheel and just start making it explicit. So you're calling direct attention to affixes you're finding, you're discussing what they mean, you're discussing how they change the word, you might use the affixes again or practice it in sentences and so on. But again, my third point, just start with the really common ones. Like if you're someone who's like, doesn't want to just keep creating all these new themes and things, just hit those core four prefixes and suffixes and just try to point them out anytime you see them in books you're reading, materials you're using. I always like to think if, if a student of mine could learn 25 affixes by the time they were done with elementary school, like how far ahead their reading and writing skills would be. And that isn't that hard if we just learn a few each year. And a lot of them they're going to encounter over and over, you know, throughout their whole day too. So kind of keep it simple. Try to just do it within whatever you're already trying to do. And I have one quick activity for tomorrow. If your students aren't quite ready for words like you're thinking like words like unhappy or redo are a little more complex than you'd love to introduce. Something that I've really found to work well as a stepping stone is to use compound words. So they're like a, such a nice bridge to affixes. So we look at words like birdhouse and we pretend to be word detectives with words blueberry, firefly, you know, words that have real words as their word parts. So sometimes having the word parts just be whole, easy to understand words just gives them that things click, I guess. It gives them that step up to be like, oh, these both of these words have separate meanings, bird and house. So one's an animal, one's a thing, and you put it together and you get a house for a bird or firefly. You know, that one's a little less concrete, but still you can imagine a fire or some sort of light and a bug. So sometimes those just really have helped like things click for my students. So basics for what you can do tomorrow, just start noticing affixes a lot more yourself. 
bring attention to them and start really simple on dissecting words. Awesome. Thank you so much. So let's say that I'm starting out with this at the end of the year and I kind of already have my theme to go in. You know, if I'm reading a book and I decide I want to target on, just kind of look through that book and see, okay, I've got unhappy. I'm trying to think of other unwords off the top of my head, but you know, it's like I've got I've got an unhappy character in a book, and then I've got somebody who of course, like unmet is another thing that I just am thinking of. But, you know, and I just start by pointing out those words to students, even though it may not be like a goal that I have written for them, I'm still targeting it in this way. Yes. Okay. That's how I've always done things. I'm sort of a fan of not breaking down language groups into so many teeny tiny components. I really like targeting everything with everyone. I sort of feel like having kids have their own sort of worksheet or own thing like we're going to just you're going to work on on and you're going to work on answering wh questions and you're going to you know so to me i love narrative i love literacy sessions so if you're in a book and you stumble across the word unhappy call attention to it in the moment say oh is he in a good mood do you think he likes that well why not you know he's unhappy and then write on on the board even after the book go back through saying, oh, he was unhappy in this scene, maybe why. You can tie it into all the other goals. You can even talk about like why he'd be unhappy, what things made him upset. And then if you wanted to do an extension activity, think of how many words you could come up with with on or do, you know, could Google search. My kids love Googling. Like I'm like, you can Google this. Like that's very fun. So I'm going to Google like words that start with on. So that would be a perfect way that I would do it. One of that I just thought of as you were saying that was dis. I love that one because I find that the word dislike comes up a lot. So we might talk about like spiders was a theme I did once. And like so many of my kids were like, like not into that. So we talked about like, what do you dislike? What do you like? And sweet group, just things we like and dislike into different categories. Like, oh, Shannon likes spiders, but Marco dislikes spiders, you know, and you're just using that. So even if the theme is like, spiders and you never see the word dis in the text at all you can just do an activity afterwards saying some of you made comments that you disliked this you know or anything like that so it doesn't have to be as direct in the text either if you're not finding the right words awesome thank you for those examples and thank you for helping me kind of figure out okay how do i start doing this tomorrow and really making these things come to life. I'm excited. We do have a question from Marissa, and then I have a couple more. Marissa is asking, may I have some examples for the Pokemon names? Pokemon was really, really fun. My brother was really into it. And here's some examples. So I brought, like, actually his cards, and I'd keep them secret, and then I would say the name, and we had to guess what we thought it might mean. So oh, I can just cool. do a couple really here. One was Snorlax. So Snorlax is like a big sleeping teddy bear animal that barely moves. Very slow moving. So we're talking about like snore, lax, being slow, like putting those pieces together. Squirtle is another one that squirts water. So we talked about, like we even talked about words that have girdle at the end. Like even wordle might be a good example, but it sort of means like a little thing or like a version of something. So that was another one. Honestly, most Pokemon Infernape or Infernape, but it's like a fire, so you're an inferno animal. Jigglypuff is like one of my favorite ones. It's like a little blob that jiggles all over, but you can imagine a Jigglypuff is exactly what it says it is. So I hope those ones are helpful, but 
pretty much all of them sort of sound exactly what they are. So it's just sort of a fun way to really draw attention to like, we need to be paying attention to big parts of words, not just little sounds. I love that. And I love that idea of bringing it in as like a word detective as what do you think this looks like? What do you think this means? Mm-hmm. And yeah, you can bring in like the nonverbal working memory too. like make a picture in your brain of what this looks like with these clues and then be like, does this card match? And what might be different? So you can really do that nonverbal working memory part two. This is again, like why I love ethics is it just ties into so many little skills there too. Absolutely. I am so excited that you have decided to dive into this because <laughs> it is something that I honestly haven't really thought of since Brown's Morphemes. And so it. it's going to be such a game changer for my therapy. Marissa said, thank you. That was amazing. Awesome. Hey. Um, dinosaurs are the same way. A lot of dinosaur names are named what they are too. I find Pokemon to be a little bit more like, I want to say fun, but dinosaurs are fun too. But Pokemon is like a little bit more of like the mystery where they're like, I really want to know what this really weird character looks like. <laughs> for sure. For sure. You know, we all kind of have, and maybe it's because we all have a concept of what a Stegosaurus looks like or a Triceratops, but not all of us have a concept of what Jigglypuff looks like. Yeah. Exactly. It's like there's a little mystery left there. Like, what really is she talking about? (laughs) Right, right. So do you write goals to target morphology or do you just work on morphology within the goals you've already written? Both. I'm trying to think of how often I would write morphology if a student just has general vocabulary deficits. I mean, so most of my experience is like fifth, sixth, and seventh grade. So take that with a grain of salt as well, that I do think at that age, it makes more sense to write a direct goal for morphology. I don't know if I would as much in the younger students or just arrest past tense verbs. I've never written like a morphology directed goal for like that. I would rather just write like a sentence formulation using that or some sort of other goal that sort of gets at that. I have definitely written direct goals for morphology though. I can think of specifically two that I've written and one that I use a lot is just name the meaning of 10 or 15 affixes. So I literally would just do like, what does un mean? This is with sixth and seventh graders. And then I did one where she had to read a sentence and identify affixes that were in words in that sentence and use it as a clue to what it would mean. So I hear so much in the speech world about context clues. I find them slightly overrated and I find morphology to be a little bit more useful. So I've done it in like a similar way. Like here's a sentence. You don't know what this word means what are the clues in the word that you could use to mean to measure that? So that's sort of another like measurable one that I've done is can they isolate them in a sentence and can they name, I like the naming one, not that my therapy looks like that, but it's so easy to measure. It's so easy. And it truly does grow throughout the year. At the beginning, they might know one of them or two of them that they can really explain. And at the end, they can actually name examples of words and name what they mean in the parts. So that's just a good one to show growth. Absolutely. Thank you. And I'm pretty sure as we're talking about this, that I got this from you. I was last year, I only did assessments and I was towards the end of the year given a middle school and I had never done middle school before. (laughs) And so even though I wasn't their speech therapist, the district still wanted me to write goals for them after I had done the assessment. And I had worked with last year was as everyone knows, you know, the school system was just madness. And so this particular school site didn't really have a consistent speech therapist. And so I was having to pull up these goals and come up with something. And and I do remember just going to speech amusings and like, okay, we need to do some sort of semantics 
word meaning type words, but beyond working with the littles, we do a lot of semantic feature analysis and not necessarily morphology and the affixes. And I really found that helpful. And then, you know, I did the listing it out, but then I think their benchmark goals were like identify, will highlight, will, you know, perfect, you know, things like that. So thank you so much for your resource of, I'm, I don't know if I found it on your blog or if it was something through Teachers Pay Teachers, but thank you for that. Yeah. And on as we're blog, talking, I have a goal bank. That's probably what you're thinking of. And I do have affix goals listed on them. I cannot recall what they are, but when I write goals, I do try to like shove them in there as just examples. So that might be, if you really just want to see how I've written goals, that would be a good place to start. I think you just go to speechamusings.com slash goal bank, but if you Google it, it should come up. <laughs> yes, you were such a lifeline to me last year having to cover that middle school because I thought, oh my goodness. <laughs> I have never done middle school. I don't know what these kids need to know, you know, so thank you for that. I love middle school, but when I got my middle school job, I was terrified. I wanted preschool only. I was all into preschool. I came out of private practice and was like, I want preschool, but this district was really fantastic and only at a middle school opening. So I'm like, you know, I'll work my way to preschool. Fell in love with middle school. Like never want to leave, but it is a whole different world than working with the littles for sure. (laughs) That is amazing. And so is it this particular school that you have been doing a lot of co-teaching or that you have in the past done a lot of co-teaching? Yes. Yep. It was the school, the same district, that same district where I did middle school is all my co-teaching experience. The district is incredible, which is why I took the middle school job. I just wanted to be in that district. It's set up so well. Every classroom has a classroom teacher and a special educator, and then all the support staff funnel in and out of classrooms. So there's OTs in there every day. There's speech in there every day. There's, you know, a lot of people think that, like, giving services in the classroom draws attention to you, but it is so constant because it's just every, there's always multiple teachers in there. They don't necessarily even know what field I work in or what I'm what I'm working on there's just always support staff there's paras in there all the time special education so it was just set up really really well for like true inclusive teaching that's amazing yeah we need to have them teach the rest of America <laughs> I, know. That. I know I know it's so hard though I think that lack of support and resources in districts makes this model very difficult so Sometimes people ask me and they tell me their exact circumstances and I'm like, oh, like, this was all very set up for me when I started there. And sometimes I just hear all of these other situations and think that this would be really, really hard to do in a district where it's not structured like that for you. Like we scheduled even kids in classrooms based on my minutes and my needs so that I could be really efficient with my time. You know, if kids were just scheduled all over the place, like most districts, it would be very difficult to do. But we clustered like kids intentionally so that minutes were easier to meet. So kids with similar goals would be in similar classroom at similar levels would be in similar so like I feel like if you don't have that kind of support that doing these types of in-class interventions get watered down really fast too because you're just sort of like meeting the needs of the seven kids in the classroom it's like a dream job for sure (laughs) that is awesome well thank you and thank you too for explaining that caveat of you know it was a very intentional model not everyone can just create something like that out of thin air Yeah, I've been in other districts since, and it's office contract work or travel positions, so I'm there for a really short time, and it's not like I come in and, like, work my magic, and I'm like, voila, it's all inclusive and perfect. Like, there's a lot more hurdles in public education, like, that are bigger picture than things that we can often solve as one SLP, so for sure. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for helping us remember that we 
Although a lot of parents and administrators think that we are amazing, which we are, we are not that amazing as much as we would like to be. Uh, I agree. As if these are amazing, but we can't solve like systemic issues on a big scale for sure. (laughs) Right. Well, thank you so much for letting us kind of go down that route for a minute. Are you taking advantage of the certificate tracker? Not only does it store your certificates from all of your evidence-based and practical courses from SpeechTherapyPD.com, but you can also upload certificates earned from other CE providers. It's the easiest way to store and keep track of your CEUs. Just another perk of membership. As we talk about morphology, have you seen any other change maybe in your therapy or maybe in your students? As we touch back on those first few points of it really does cover a lot of areas within language, have you noticed any change that has impacted those other areas of language? I don't know if this is exactly what you're getting at, but I feel like I've learned so much about like root causes of issues versus like big picture skills. And I just think that's made a huge difference of like how I see a lot of my language kids and like I don't even know how long I really did this. I started in private practice, so I wasn't doing reading comprehension or, like, textbook stuff for a long time. But I just felt like all I heard about was, like, giving kids a text and having them understand it and practicing with a full text and practicing with a book. And it just didn't feel like it got to, like, these root issues. And I feel like doing morphology directly with students, like, one of the root issues, which is... I think apparent to all SLPs is attention. A lot of our kids do not attend to the language. They don't attend to the vocabulary. So I feel like morphology is one of those things that increases attention to the right things. Like they're getting actual clues. And to me, focusing on skills like context clues, it's really hard. I feel like if you give a kid a sentence and it's like a context clue sentence, they might be able to guess what the word means. But if it's a real sentence out of a textbook and they don't know what a word means, it's often really, really hard to actually use context clues to understand that word. But I find that morphology actually makes it easier. It isn't really, really hard to understand morphology in the real world context. So I feel like that's kind of two different answers. But one, it really helps address those root cause issues. And two, I feel like it helps build attention to the right things in discrete things, not these like big nebulous things like understanding a paragraph. Like it's a really discrete and specific. Thank you. Yeah, that is exactly what I was trying to get at in a very wordy matter. Um, And I really like that point of it increases attention to the right things. I would agree with you. You know, you sit down with a student and you ask them a question. And I know Margo Quarter Kinzer or Kinzer Quarter, I always mess that up. She always talks about language processing. And I really think morphology is kind of at that key piece of language processing. Like you've said, I would agree. You know? it's all those pieces. So mm-hmm. it helps you understand how this how it sounds mean what and it helps you understand meaning and part of speech. I would totally agree. I feel like it's that automatic processing that happens where everyone who's a good reader is doing this automatically. Our kids are often just not attending to the right things. They don't have that nonverbal working memory. They don't have verbal working memory. So they can do like the phonological side, the imagery side. It's everything for sure. And I also wanted to swing back to, I mentioned it's really good for students learning English as a second language, but this is like one of the first years I did really write goals for this and do it. It was like one of those aha moments. I was like, I have to keep doing this. I had a girl in seventh grade, really significant literacy deficits, and it was learning English as a second language. It just moved here. So it's just like a lot on her all at once. And 
all of a sudden we had this moment where, and it was one of those activities that I had said where it was like govern, government, economic, you know, economy. I had pointed out that a word that she pronounced and knew earlier, she didn't know a different form of it later. It was a much longer version of it. And when I said, you know, this word, I compared it to the other word. We broke it down. It has the same base. It has half of the same meaning. Like it was just a different part of speech. It was like a light bulb went off and she would come to me every week being like, I saw another word that was like another word I knew. So she started to see words she knew in other words. I don't know if no one had ever just told her like words are made up of multiple parts. So it's not just like this big one word, but like she would actually try to scan a word for parts she might know. It was just like a light bulb moment that I feel like was one of those things that it's like, maybe you don't need to write a whole goal for morphology, but kids really, really ought to know that pieces of words have meaning. Pieces of words are repeated often in text. You're going to see consistent things. All like You're going to see un a lot once you know what that means, you know, and you're going to see certain base words a lot. And even as I've made other vocabulary materials, it's actually really interesting to see how many common words are all related to each other. Even like base, I just thought like a basement or include, exclude, in and ex, include, inclusion. Like you start to see all these like things that once these kids start to realize that you can find those little parts in the middle, big words start to seem less scary. They feel like they have like actually a skill they can pull from with these words. Some of these kids, like I was amazed when kids are learning in fifth and sixth grade. So I feel like it's, it's very high level stuff. And so it gives the, our kids so much confidence to be like, I can handle a bit more like government and see like tiny pieces in it. So that was just another thing that I felt like was like a big push for me to be like, morphology is so important. And I, again, I said these older kids, but I feel like it would be the similar for younger kids with those more basic parts too. Absolutely. And what a huge gift that you've given that girl too because it was an aha moment for her of I can do this like you said giving these kids the confidence of I know these words I've seen these things before and then even that idea of the wordplay within the morphology you know playing those morphological awareness type games giving kids some joy within words is you know going to spark that love of learning hopefully a little bit more and especially if reading becomes so much easier for them then that is such a huge gift. So Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And anything with dry erase, I'll say that's like always a hit. If we're writing the words on like dry erase boards, erasing parts, like I feel like a lot of think a lot of people think therapy has to be so boring if you're talking about morphology, but it is like honestly it's not like we need a sharp NATO unit because my kid loves shark and then like tornado or shark NATO. Like we're bringing in all sorts of random things, but they love looking at words and kind of coming up with like morphology can be really silly. You can make real nonsense words with all these parts. You can like and actually a lot of kids that I work with make up incorrect words, but using morphological parts, I can't give an example right now, but we even use those as examples. Like, why did you think that was a word? What part did you pull? And it's sort of fun to just think about like making up goofy words with word parts too. I don't know. I feel like you can really make it fun. It's not just like drill and kill. Like I said, how I collect data, how it is unmean, what does re mean? Like I'm not doing that in therapy. We're really finding like fun topics, writing on the board, like making it super functional. My kids really like coming to therapy. I think a lot more when they actually see what they're getting out of it. And when they go to the classroom and they see these affixes and everything that they do, I feel like they're like, okay, Mrs. W is not just wasting her time. Like it's actually here and it's related to these things. They're seeing it in, in the real world. So some of these other skills I think are hard to really see. I'll use context as another example. It's really hard to see context clues like in their, in their text. It's really hard when they're trying to decode, like reading out loud in classrooms, when they're actually trying to decode live in front of other students and like the anxiety is rising, 
I feel like morphology is a skill where they're like, wow, that was actually very helpful. I could break the word apart, sound it out, feel more confident with my skills. So it's a skill that I feel like outwardly sounds boring, but when you're talking about dinosaurs and Pokemon and Sharknadoes, it's it's pretty fun. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Which is why I'm so excited that you wanted to dive into this a little bit more because when we were first communicating back and forth with, okay, what are we going to talk about? And you suggested morphology. I thought, yeah, actually, that's a great idea. I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> and um, and now I am like, just so excited to jump in and see what I can do with my students. I think my oldest student right now that I'm working with is sixth grade. We're going to jump in and do some Sharknado stuff this week, Love I it. think. You know? know how it goes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So thank you so much for just making it exciting. And your passion for it is definitely coming through for sure. I have been, especially this last year, diving deeper into assessments and only doing assessments at first was really, therapy is where the fun is at and where the joy (laughs) is. But I thought, okay, if this is what I'm going to be doing, let me dive into this. And then really thinking critically about the goals that I'm writing for students and getting to those root causes of issues Mm -hmm. has been so eye-opening. So thank you for really bringing morphology as this huge root cause that we can attribute to a lot of different areas, whether it's syntax or semantics and even the phonology of it. It's exciting to take something and to really see that difference that we can make for kids, especially like you shared, you know, especially that idea of giving kids the gift of the joy of learning. So yes, yes. And that. Everyone says don't use extrinsic motivators. I never have been a huge fan, but I definitely use motivators, which is just like huge amount of excitement for all the things we get to learn about. And all of my kids have a topic that they love. There's, I have no kids that have come in and been like, I like nothing, right? Like you can always relate this to, to whatever that they like and it helps them understand the thing they like more. And I, one of my kids got into Latin roots after this and like learned about etymology and he was really into different languages and like just on his own, like he just got really excited about it. But if it helps you understand the content subject you like even better, those kids are like ready to dive in it's fun that is awesome christina shared love this course so much so helpful and marissa also says this presentation excited me so much as well thank you and i would agree like i feel like you know this last hour we've totally geeked out over words (laughs) and i can't wait to geek out even more over words and like i know (laughs) when i was writing it i was like this is a very nerdy talk this is like in the weeds we are really in the weeds here so i'm glad everyone like it all came together and made sense. <laughs> yes, I can't wait to look at the books that I'm going to be using for the remainder of the year and to just scour them looking for, okay, what prefixes, what suffixes am I going to target? And and also diving into asking my kids, okay, what is it that you guys want to do this year, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and also yeah. looking forward to next year too. I really love that idea of finding out what they like, especially for those older kids. You know, theme therapy isn't as easy to do with those older yeah. students. So, yeah. yeah. One thing I did along those lines every year at the beginning of the year, I did like an interest survey. I don't think I called it that, but I basically had every student in every group submit the things that they wanted to learn about the most. And then I made a large list for each group. I number all of my groups every school year. So like each group would be like group number 17 has like these interests that they want to learn about. And then we would do monthly voting on whose topic 
pick, we got to pick. So sharks is like a big one in one year that this boy really wanted to learn about sharks. So it went on the list and then each month we would vote like what topic we're going to learn about. That to me seemed like a much more natural way to do themes with middle schoolers. Like I don't, I don't pick themes with middle schoolers in the same way, but I just did like a lot of interests and then voting on which thing are we going to learn about next and found text for the thing, affixes in those texts and so on. But I was very interest driven. And I think that that keeps, they're always curious what they're going to learn about the next week when they show up, which is fun. They're like, what's the topic this week? That helps too, is really incorporating whatever they love into it. Computers is another one. Lots of computer terminology has a lot of affixes in it. So it really is like any sort of niche interest a kid has, I can like, we can just run with this. There's so much, you know, as, as you get more into the weeds of any technical subjects, you see start seeing repetitive word parts. So Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you for that tip on interest led themes as well. I mean, I also love the democratic process that you <laughs> use too, you know, students, which also increases engagement as well. Mm-hmm. So well, it doesn't result in some disputes as well. There was some bickering over like, no, we're not going to talk about sharks. Like we did boy things last month. I'm like, everything is for everyone. We all vote for it. <laughs> it gets them really into what they're voting for. And they know whose subject is what. So the person whose interest that is, is like a key player that month which is fun for each of them to sort of rotate through being like the person this was voted for. So That is really fun to even yeah. think about it from that aspect as well. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love that. Thank you. And most of them are experts. Like the shark kid, we did shark stuff, but then he got 10 minutes, one session, where he just got to tell everyone shark facts. So you can just have like, you know, moments where they can just spew everything they know to. I mean, who doesn't love talking about what they know and what they're really knowledgeable in? So that was just another fun way to be like, we're going to learn about sharks all month. We're going to learn about all those language parts of sharks, write sentences about sharks, and then you can tell everyone everything you know about sharks. That is awesome. (laughs) I love that. As we wrap up, do you want to go through your three, two, one, or do you want to just leave us with some lasting thoughts? I can do a quick three, two, one. Unlike the word vomit and all of them, they're pretty short. (laughs) So the first thing was that explicitly teaching affixes is research supported for both reading comprehension and word learning. They're functional everywhere and easier to target just to do what you're doing and find affixes. And a very small number make up 97% in printed text. So those are the one, two, three. The two resources are my prefix and suffix activities and word detectives. That's from Vanderbilt. And then my last tip was just to start noticing and explicitly teaching affixes in everything you're already doing. So just finding them in text or like the spider example, just using the word dislike as the starting place for what to talk about. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Shannon. This was amazing. And I can't wait to dive into morphology this week and for the rest of the school year. So thank you so much. And everyone else. Yes, absolutely. And everyone else, just as a reminder, please log into your speechtherapypd.com account at the conclusion of the course to make sure that you complete all modules, especially the one entitled quiz to get your live CEUs for today. And we will see you all back here, hopefully next Tuesday, same time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Shannon. Have a great rest of your evening, everyone. Thanks for joining us at This Speech Life. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe.